0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is an old friend, George Serafin. George is a Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business Schools. And he is probably well known to many of our listeners as one of the leading academics on purpose, sustainability, ESG, and the like. He has served on the boards of a number of companies. He's He's a theorist. He's a practitioner too, or a very practitioner oriented theorist. And he's just come out with a book that was eagerly awaited by me, which was a book on profit and purpose How Can Business Lift Up the World? Published in August 2022 by HarperCollins. And he's here today to discuss the book. And George essentially, in the book, describes how profit and purpose came from being viewed as orthogonal, some sort of trade off, to being complements and even drivers of economic value today. So we're going to discuss all of that. Thank you for joining me, George, and congratulations on the new book. Martin,
1: it's a great pleasure to be here with you, and thank you very much for having me.
0: So you've been in the field for a while, but you decided to go through the pain of writing a book. What was your motive in writing the book now, George? And you're exactly
1: right, Martin. It's a, it is actually a painful process to write a book. It takes, it takes forever, and it's really a big commitment. But the reason why I wrote the book is because I have witnessed a huge change, I would say, in the last 15 years here in the classroom and where I observe talent flowing in the economy. I think the question about how can I make a difference, how can I have impact, how can I have purpose in my work was something that I would say 15 years ago was really not on the radar of the talent flow of the economy. But right now, increasingly, it is very much so. And I think, uh, as a result, it's affecting the competitiveness organizations, it's affecting their ability to attract, to retain, and grow talent, and really to develop exceptional services for their customers. So I think those questions about purpose are becoming increasingly important. But something that worries me quite a bit is also that that cannot overwhelm the whole discussion about profit, because profit is also extremely important because it's fueling this nation towards purpose. So from that perspective, that's why I put purpose and profit. Both of them deserve to be in the title.
0: Very good. So let's put this in perspective, because it's hard to remember where all of this started. I remember I started a sustainability report that we spoke of at the time with, with MIT Sloan Management. And at the time, it was a fringe activity. You know, One department in a company was interested in this topic sometimes, but now it's almost become de rigueur. So Take us through the Delta. What was it like in the Dark Ages? And where are we today? And what has caused that change?
1: Such an important question, Martin, because right now, for example, you see a lot of criticism and a lot of confusion, for example, about ESG data and reporting and all of those things. But I think most people tend to forget, or maybe they were not in the field, that actually there was no data back there. So at least now you have data to complain about. Back there, you have nothing to complain about because there was no data. And I think that is a very, very important distinction. The, the underlying idea that we were operating in a world of basically opacity, uh, whether that is about carbon emissions, for example, metrics. And if you observe the number of companies that have been releasing carbon emissions data over time, it has grown exponentially. And And of course, we can improve that data, right? And that data is not as accurate as they should be. Or as reliable as they should be, and so forth. But there was no data to begin with. Or when you are looking at, for example, lost time injury rates data or water consumption data, whatever that might be, there was no data. And at least now we are actually going through the journey that is the basic accounting journey of actually creating societal consensus that something is worth measuring, and then something is worth disclosing, and then deciding that something is worth investing societal resources to improve its measurement and its elements of comparability, timeliness, and reliability. And as measurement technologies are improving, one of the things that we're finding is that management technologies are improving as well, meaning that managers are actually understanding how they can better analyze and drive performance improvements on those KPIs as well. But I always describe this journey that there was no data to begin with. And over time, we're actually getting better and better data. And because of that transparency revolution, more and more people are interested in the data as well.
0: So also to help us to, to put things into perspective, George, how would you describe the, the current state of play? Because we've come a long way. So are we doing it all and we're about to conquer climate change tomorrow morning? Or is there some you know, untapped frontier? Where, where do we currently stand? How would you characterize things?
1: So I tend to put the almost the maturity journey of organizations in the whole sustainability space in three broad buckets. And that's what I call compliance, efficiency, and innovation and growth. Most organizations start their journey in the space by actually saying, how can we make sure that we don't do something really, really bad in the space? That we don't actually engage in some type of activity and behavior that exposes us to huge legal or reputational risk. And that is the compliance perspective. Over time, most organizations are finding that, oh, look, I can actually reduce water and I can reduce waste and I can reduce energy or I can have better employment practices and use artificial intelligence and reduce accidents in my workforce or I can make people actually behave in better ways and I improve productivity. And I think that is a journey that most organizations now have gone through the third stage is what I call innovation and growth, where you actually start looking back at your core competitive advantages and how you can actually create value. How can you reimagine value chains? How can you provide better products and services to your customers? And that, I don't think we are there yet for most organizations. I think that requires a much more complex management and governance journey. And as a result, I would say, when I talk to organizations, my best estimate would be one out of five, optimistically, one out of 10, a little bit more pessimistically, would be undergoing that journey. And of course, then the question is how all those organization-specific efforts translate into larger systems-level change right, and societal change.
0: Well, let's, let's get into both of those. So the title of your book, Profit and Purpose, can you give us an example of a company that is in your tier three of impact that is, has a purpose and is measuring the right things and is using it not just to drive compliance or efficiency, but also driving growth, innovation and profit.
1: I might give one of the most controversial examples of, of the current age and say that Tesla is a great example actually. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because of multiple reasons. The first one, it illustrates how you can actually use your products to completely disrupt an existing industry but also to move actually and accelerate the journey of the whole industry. So not only how you're having company specific impacts, but how you're having widespread, I would say, systematic effects throughout the whole industry and I would say throughout the whole value chain. The second one that it illustrates is the difference between having an ESG scorecard perspective versus a purpose-driven organization, which is Tesla is not, is not great. At all of the ESG metrics and all of the ESG scorecards. But it's actually making very, very intentional, I would say, trade-offs between what it's trying to do, which is accelerate the sustainable energy revolution, versus actually being good at all of the ESG metrics, right? I think that is that is an important distinction that one needs
0: to make. Yeah, well let's let's go into that little controversy that you hinted at there, because Tesla is indeed an example of a company that many say would say is driving innovation and, and profit in the autos business, but in ways in which promote electrification and, and sustainability. But at the same time, it has been excluded from many rankings of companies based on ESG scores. And more broadly, there's been quite a lot of controversy recently about whether ESG scores are arbitrary in some way, showing that different indices. Interpret the scores in different ways, and you can get virtually whatever result you want from a, a set of ESG metrics. So, teeing off of the Tesla example, how would you respond to the, the limits of measuring ESG parameters as a way of guiding companies towards a sustainable and profitable future?
1: It's a great question. And we actually, we wrote a paper on this that now we have published in the Accounting Review. It's called Why is Corporate Virtue in the Eye of the Beholder? And uh, one of the things that we're finding is that in a counterintuitive way, with the increase in disclosure, actually rating, ESG ratings, disagree more. While in most markets, you would expect that with more disclosure, people will agree more. In the ESG space, actually, you're finding with more disclosure, people disagree more. And why is that? Because actually, I think we're in the very early stages of developing institutional norms, and the types of rules that one would expect on how you evaluate this type of performance and also because as we are seeking to actually measure more and more outcomes instead of inputs as part of the metrics ecosystem, then it's more likely that we will disagree more on how good those outcomes are because evaluating outcomes is, is much harder. Evaluating whether you have a policy and this is a good policy, it's much easier whether you have a target, but evaluating on the outcomes that you're achieving from your efforts is a much harder process. And I would say that the ESG framework is conditioned on what you think is important, what are the types of things that you're measuring, and then how you are actually evaluating performance on those dimensions. So each one of those choices introduces, I would say, a disagreement element. And then the question is, what are you trying to achieve from that? ESG ratings are trying to achieve a very, very specific objective, which is actually taking a multidimensional view and trying to weigh all these different dimensions and trying to understand how good you can be overall. They're not trying to evaluate how you might drive performance and fundamental change on a single issue, for example, as, as Tesla might be doing. That is a very, very different perspective.
0: Right. The title of your book, again, Profit and Purpose, relates to perhaps to some of the studies that you've done and a few others but but you had a big one showing that companies that embrace ESG do in fact do better financially and i guess in the light of what we've just been talking about that that raises a couple of issues you know one of them is what's the direction of causality do companies spend more on things like ESG because they can because they're doing well for other reasons or do they do well in some ways because of ESG factors and the second one is to what extent does it depend upon the exact calculations? Because we've shown that different fund managers can reach very different conclusions by combining and analyzing ESG scores in different ways. So looking back to your big study on ESG and profitability or stock market performance, how do you put that into perspective now? I think it
1: goes back to the earlier discussion that we're having about do you view those efforts from a compliance perspective or do you view them from an innovation and growth perspective? And I think if you view them from a compliance perspective, then you would reach the conclusion that the direction of causality is one of, okay, more profitable firms, they might have more resources, they have more slack, they're investing more on those types of activities, and as a result, they will have better ESG. But if you take an innovation and growth perspective, and then you say, what are the most critical issues? What are the most two, three critical issues that this organization needs to drive performance? Not because necessarily they're just social-minded oriented, but because they know that this is going to drive the performance of the business tomorrow, then actually you're understanding that the direction of causality is from those ESG issues towards profitability. And a simple example that I give is, for example, in the waste management industry. Well, actually, in the waste management industry, you're paying upstream, right? Kind of like you, you get paid upstream, and then you're paying to basically downstream, for the waste approaches. What if you could actually change that process and you could get paid downstream as well? And as a result, you could actually eliminate a tremendous amount of carbon emissions as part of that process. You would observe that, that the company is, of course, eliminating a tremendous amount of carbon emissions, but that is because it has created a completely new business model and is doing that, right? So from that perspective, companies are thinking this way. They're actually driving profits. And the same idea can be said in companies like Tesla or for battery manufacturing, and so forth. But I think the fundamental perspective is, do you adopt a compliance perspective, in which case it will be from profit to ESG, or you adopt an innovation and growth perspective and asking the question about, as I grow my organizations, how can I have more positive impact? And how can I achieve my purpose? And then the direction of the causality is on the other way.
0: And I guess that raises another paradox, which is, so my field is, business strategy. And those special factors, the design of new business models, the basis of competitiveness are almost by definition, specific to a particular company in a, a specific situation. But ESG coming out of its sort of accounting standards heritage, in a sense, has a strong nuance or implication that these things can be standardized. And there's a tension there, I think, you know, there, there probably is no standard set of metrics for what is a great strategy yet the ESG people tell us to, you know, to measure in a standardized and a, and a comparable manner. How do, how do we break that paradox?
1: You know, Martin, one of the things that I say many times that I speak to executive teams or to boards is that one of the most fundamental mistakes that organizations are making is allowing for reporting to drive strategy rather than the other way around. And that is actually a mistake that many companies have made in the ESG space where they have allowed standards not only to guide their communication efforts, but actually to guide their strategy. And this is a critical mistake. And you see that, by the way, in many organizations where they, what they call ESG strategy, you open the deck and the first slide of the deck is what the rating providers are telling them to do and how they can actually optimize their ratings, right, within this context. And I think we need to fundamentally understand that with standards, there is a trade-off. Standards are actually increasing the comparability of the information, but sometimes they can decrease the relevance of the information because of the reason that you just mentioned, that each organization's strategy can be quite unique. But at the same time, that comparability of information is important from a market allocation perspective. You need to be able to compare across organizations and make relative performance evaluation judgments. So that's that's the challenge that we'll be facing moving forward. But organizations need to understand that they cannot allow the standards and the reporting efforts to drive their strategy. It's the other way around. They need to actually start with a discussion about how we can create value by improving the impact that we're having. And then how can we communicate in that rather than the other way around.
0: Precisely. So changing it slightly, clearly there's some connection between the efforts of individual companies on purpose and profit and ESG, and social impact overall, social and ecological impact. But it seems to me entirely possible that one could make best efforts at the level of each company, yet be failing to make sufficient overall progress. And clearly, we're faced shortly with discussing the world's most intractable problem, climate change at uh, COP26. So are we making sufficient progress? And if so, is that just the speed of adoption of ESG? Or is there some other essential feature necessary in order to have sufficient overall impact?
1: It's one of those really, really difficult problems, Martin, climate change, because of its structure. It's a global problem. It requires global coordination. Is also it has a timing element, meaning that one ton of carbon emitted today is more destructive than one tonne of carbon emitted. 20 years from now because of the time value of carbon. So it has many structures that make it a really wicked problem in many ways. So I I think because of that, as you say, individual level actions might not bubble up to make for systems level change. We need actually much stronger, in my opinion, government coordination across the world and policies that actually will help accelerate the rate of innovation. By the way, On the positive side as well, we have observed very significant learning rates and rates of innovation actually on many industries, from battery manufacturing, of course, to solar panels and so forth. So it's not like we're not making progress because sometimes also when you speak about climate, it's all doom and gloom somehow. But at the same time, we're making very, very significant progress on many of the technologies that will be needed around the world. But we're not making enough progress to what is called net zero or getting to net zero. That will require, I would say, much higher level of conviction from, first of all, governments and policymakers around the world. And of course, from the people that elect them, right? Across most of uh, the democracies of the world.
0: So, teeing off of that, a couple of things. Firstly, I wonder whether there's, there's all sorts of things standing between individual impact and overall social impact, but I'm wondering whether there is a dominant factor. For example, you know, some people have posited that the dominant factor in that equation is the fact that the companies that are the biggest emitters are, understandably, in their own interest, the laggards in ESG adoption. Maybe it's a case of who's not reporting. Or, you know, others have proposed that it's something to do with the collective action nature of the problem, that somehow the sum total of individual efforts cannot equal the overall result for society because of interdependencies. If I do one thing, it will affect your business in ways that maybe make me look good and make your job worse. For instance, if I start making my cars of of aluminium, this may make my cars lighter and and less emitting, but it may precipitate energy intensity in, in metal production, for example. And others have proposed that it's a lack of an overall accounting scheme for a nation, although I see that uh, the Biden administration is just making some first steps on their natural asset wealth indicator. But what what do you think is the dominant missing link between individual company impact and overall impact?
1: I think all of the above that you mentioned are actually critical elements, right? But I would say overall, I think it's having a clear theory of change, right? And for many people, the Their theory of change has been actually, let's go to high-carbon polluters and try to convince them to become different companies. And in my humble opinion, this is not going to work. I think what is going to work is providing alternatives for people, actually. And that is something that can work much more productively. People want to have access to cost-efficient products and services that are not going to sacrifice their quality of living. So as a result, you need to provide an electric vehicle that drives well and it's fast and it has the range and so forth. You need to provide an HVAC system that is also pretty affordable and pretty good. You need to provide a plant-based burger that tastes pretty good, right? I think it's about actually providing the alternatives. I think we need to deeply internalize that we need to accelerate the rate of innovation in what I call climate solutions, meaning products and services that will be provided in an affordable way for people to basically maintain their their standard of living. Otherwise, I think people are going to be upset and they're going to resist actually making the change because this is a characteristic of us humans. We, We love making steps forward. Who doesn't like being in a growth environment? Who wants to be In an environment where you would say, go back 20 years. You know, having grown up in Greece and having been there, I can tell you that is not a good environment to be in.
0: You touched on the role of government there. I wonder whether one of the indirect, let's say, own goals of of the ESG movement has been somehow the disempowerment of government, because, you know, anything to do with minimum standards or, or collective action traditionally has had a strong hand of government. And I guess, in a sense, the ESG movement is much more characterized by self-regulation, voluntary reporting, and so on. Do you, do you think that all of the action around ESG in some ways has diluted a necessary role for government, or actually, would you argue the opposite, which is, you know, we're better off with a self-organizing, voluntary system?
1: I, I have heard that argument a couple of times, and to me, this never kind of like strikes true to me, because actually, a big part of the ESG movement was actually a bet on policy action, right? So for example, if you actually were to invest in a low carbon, let's say index, well, that is an index that has a very low tracking error that is expected to deliver very, very similar risk return profile with an embedded call option on climate regulation, for example. And to the extent that that climate regulation might be there, you will actually expect these investments to outperform because they will be less exposed to that carbon regulation. The same thing, actually, when it comes to the more general ESG movement. To a large extent that the theory of change here was that you would actually have more transparency, but over time that will flow into mandatory disclosure regulation that would allow you to have more comparability, more reliable data, more timely data, and so forth. So I think while the genesis of this has been to create an environment where people will start appreciating that some of those CSG factors, not all of them, but some of them will be strategically important and operationally important for organizations. Their importance is increasing over time. Their importance is also industry and context-specific. It's not like everything matters for everyone. And it's also dynamic, meaning that as technologies are changing, as regulations are changing, the importance of those factors is changing, but over time, that will flow into the policy framework that the world needs to have in order to decarbonize the world, in order to create access to opportunity for more people, in order to create safer products, and so forth. So I always viewed those things as actually being in the complementary realm between policy and the ESG movement.
0: As a strategist, I look at the climate debate and I see it as it's many things. You know, it's a wicked problem. It's a social problem. It's a political problem. It's a technical problem. But I see it as a potential competitive upheaval. So, during the digital upheaval, we had a competition of theories, and some companies came out as new winners uh, to a remarkable degree. Actually, if you look at the league tables before and after 1980 of companies, we have essentially a new a new rolling class of business. You know, many of the big technology companies. So. As a competitive upheaval that's, that's in process, you know, in 10 years' time when we look back, what do you think we'll see about the companies that exploited that upheaval for advantage and emerged as new winners and the ones that somehow faded into history?
1: I love the analogy that you're making with a digital revolution because it's at the core of what I do now here. We have just created, and I call it here, a lab on the intersection between the digital transformation and the sustainability transformation. And the reason why we're combining those two is one, because I think both of them are facing some of the same organizational challenges, right? I'm sure like going back in time, you saw so many organizations that they try to think about digital as something in the periphery of the organization, not something that is actually a core of what everybody's doing, but something that is a department and you have the five people that are thinking about it. Some of the same challenges that I would say exist with sustainability and actually ESG that they are trying to peripheralize that whole. But the the other aspect of it is that actually we're viewing digital transformation and the application of artificial intelligence as a key element, and the application of design as well, as a key element of accelerating the climate and the sustainability transformation as well. Whether that is from decentralizing the grid and actually enabling a much more decentralized electricity generation that then is enabled by digital transformation, to applications of computer vision and drone technology to understand soil degradation and creating carbon sinks. All of those applications have a pretty fundamental intersection between the diesel and the data transformation and the sustainability transformation. And my own prediction, and this is what we have been working on here as well, is that I think at 2040, you will observe a very different league of organizations in terms of market cap in terms of size and in terms of profits as well. And many of those, what we call climate solutions organizations, meaning the products and services and enabling a transformation of the economy towards a low carbon economy, either through sequestration or mitigation, are going to experience very, very significant revenue growth. Whether that translates into profit, of course, is a function of expenses, but they will experience a very, very significant revenue growth. And the mathematics are very clear to me. We emit more or less 50 gigatons of CO2. About 40 of them will have to mitigate, the rest, 10, will have to sequester them. So put some price on averting or sequestering all those carbon, and that creates trillions of dollars actually in marketplaces. So the question is, who has the vision, the conviction, the management quality, the governance quality to go after those opportunities? But we see a very, very significant opportunity for value creation.
0: A huge topic, George, but unfortunately, our time is limited. So maybe if I can end with a couple of personal questions. So you, you teach future leaders of business at Harvard Business Schools. What skills are you trying to equip them with, skills and knowledge, to be warriors in this new age of competitive and climate upheaval? What's different from the traditional MBA course, for example?
1: I think a couple of uh, things that are really important, Martin, the first one, and maybe it's not as exciting, but I think it's, it's easy to actually, in this whole discussion around sustainability, to get too emotional and to forget about rigor, actually, in this space. And this is what I have observed in many organizations, where organizations are starting to make decisions based on emotions rather than on facts and on data. So one of the things that I do a lot in the class is I impose an analytical, basically, rigor into understanding those things. For example, instead of saying, well, policies and regulations are going to change the world, kind of like taking, for example, a forward-looking perspective and saying, well, if you have a border adjustment mechanism, for example, in the European Union, and you run a steel manufacturer versus a cement manufacturer, what are your scenarios? What would you do? as a result of that carbon border adjustment mechanism. And then based on those scenarios, what would be the implications for margins? What would be the implications for revenue growth? And so forth. So actually taking some of those kind of like conceptual and ground level changes that are happening and putting that in the micro and putting an analytical framework behind them and forcing people to make tough decisions, I think it's a very, very important element. The second element that I think is very important is creating better forecasting skills for people, especially in environments where there might be some very, very significant changes in terms of market demand, in terms of technologies, in terms of regulations, and so forth. It's very easy to either over forecast or under forecast, right? And both actually can lead to a tremendous amount of value destruction. So the question is how do you actually, again, Take all the data, take all the perspectives, understand the different views, and you can actually make better decisions to get it just right. And I think that is something that we underteach in many ways in business schools. We, sometimes we get a lot of the students too excited about things or we, we make them too reliant on the past, much like the future will be the past. So I think getting that just right it's always that Goldilocks dilemma that is really, really important.
0: me. I'd, I'd like to ask you what you're working on next. I, I guess if we know what's in your research portfolio, respectively, we, we can sort of see what the next frontier is in the, in the topic. But what are the big, the big topics that you're working on next?
1: I'm very excited about what you mentioned before about the work that we're doing now in the intersection between the digital and the data transformation, the sustainability transformation, understanding all the different use cases, for example, for a different design, data, and digital ecosystem and how this can actually create new business models, completely new products across different sectors of the economy, and how we can accelerate that through our own teaching and research and startup, basically, ecosystem that we can create in this space. So that intersection is, uh, especially with applications of artificial intelligence, is what I'm concentrating primarily on right now.
0: Well, congrats on the book again, George, and thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Thank you so much, Martin.
0: I've been discussing Purpose and Profit, How Business Can Lift Up the World, published by HarperCollins in August 2022 with the author, George Seraphim. In the book, he discusses the tremendous progress we've made. But what I like about the book is I like the empirical insights, the tangible examples, and the things that you can actually do to drive your company forward. I I also think that there's sometimes a little bit of dogma in this topic. And I, I like George's skepticism in the book, the way that he shows that doing the fashionable things too much can be as much of a problem as not doing them at all. So I think a book that's well worth reading and of course, very topical. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome feedback.